You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. I add my welcome to you tonight. It's good to be together. We have, a, um, we have visitors around to our house. We have a grilling slash interrogation process, which usually starts with the question, if money and morals were no problem, what car would you drive? But let's move on from that one. The next question would be, what's a favorite movie? What's one of your favorite all-time movies? And that usually poses a bit of a problem for people because it depends sort of what mood they're in and what genre we're talking about. But, but I wonder what your favorite movie is. Um, perhaps one of my, I don't know if I call it favorites, but one of the movies that has impacted me greatly would be Schindler's List. Many of you had to, had to see that as a kind of a school subject, which is a bit of a pity because, you know, just the very fact that it's, it's kind of um, uh, uh, part of your school curriculum kind of makes it, makes it immediately boring, doesn't it? But it's a pretty, pretty amazing movie. And of course, those who don't know the story, spoiler alert, block your ears if you, if you don't want to hear this, but for those of you who don't know the story, it's about World War II, a, a German by the name of Oskar Schindler. And uh, at first, when war breaks out, he's, he's simply profiteering. He, he runs a number of factories that are, that are doing very, very well um, because of the war. But he discovers something. As he um, is able to get cheap labor through the, through the imprisoned Jews, the more that he looks at and notices the cruelty of, of uh, the Germans towards the, the Jewish people, the more he realizes that what is happening is very, very wrong. But those who are working in his factories are protected. And, and so he continues to try to employ as, as many as he can into his factories, even to the point where he's overstaffed. He has to, has to pay the, uh, the Germans for each of these, these Jews, Jews. But each time he realizes that he does this, he is, as it were, paying for a life. There he was just going about his, his work, but then he discovered an even greater work, a work of huge importance that, that actually he was being called to do. Well, as Christians, I, I think that can often be the case with us as well. There's the ordinary life that we have, the, the work that we do, whether it's a work that, that pays uh, financially or whether it's a work that pays in terms of you know, raising, raising children and a family. Whatever your work happens to be, it's often as we go about that ordinary work, that ordinary life that each of us, or is a part of each of us, it's as we go about that that sometimes in the midst of your work, you discover a work that God is doing. And God is always at work. Did you know that? That as you, your God, your heavenly Father, is a very, very busy Father. That's not to say He doesn't have time for you. Of course He does. He has all the time in the world. Literally, time belongs to Him. He has time for you, but he's also very, very busy. He's always at work. And we've been, uh, we've been trying to understand a little bit more about the work of God and, and the work that he calls us to as we, as we contemplate what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, as many of you know, if you've, you've been here in the last few months, years actually, uh, we've, been, we've been thinking about how to be the very best disciples of Jesus Christ we can. We want to be people who bring God much glory. Um, he will be glorified as we live fruitful lives. Fruit is the inevitability of abiding. So we figured a few years ago, let's try and understand what it means to abide in Christ and to have him abide in us. We broke the word abide down into an acrostic. A means that we know that we will benefit in this matter by understanding what it means to do life together, all together. That's the A. B is the importance or a reminder of the importance to be still. I means that we've got a model in all of this, and that is we can imitate Christ. D is uh, they will know that we are his disciples as we love one another. Our devotion to one another is very important. And E is talking about being envoys of his grace. You've been given much grace. Now be an envoy of grace. Um, once we got to the E, we figured, wow, we sing about grace all the time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We better try and understand this grace. So we, 
I had a little series within the series within the series. It sounds like Inception, doesn't it? Scary. But we had a little little series on the grace of God from, from 2 Corinthians where, where Paul is giving, as it were, a, an apologetic for his apostleship. And, and he starts to talk about you, the fact that his apostleship is based on the grace of God. To understand grace, Paul uses a number of pictures, and, and we've been learning those pictures and what it means, and we could recite them all together, but let me, let me just give us you know, the, the skinny version on that one. And that is that, firstly, we are unto God the aroma of Christ Jesus. That is to say, we bring God the same sort of pleasure that a sweet aroma does, that, such as the aroma of his son. Incredible, absolutely incredible. But you bring the father as much pleasure as Jesus the son brings the father. Isn't, isn't that remarkable? We are to God the aroma of, of Christ Jesus. Um, now, that is only so, not because you and I you know, are inherently nice-smelling people. No, that is only so because something has happened in our lives. It's like that, that, that dark and dead void that was once our, once our spiritual heart while the light of Christ has now dawned upon that so that we are actually um, brought to life. Uh, Our lives now, our heart is full of life and full of color and the vibrancy that God always always created you and meant you to enjoy. Um, It's it's like like a veil that once covered your heart has been pulled back and other people can see it. It's like a veil has been removed from your face as well. They can see Jesus Christ within you. And that's actually... The best way to explain the fact that we're, we are pretty ordinary people, actually. God loves to use the foolish things of this world. We're like a clay pot or a clay jar, just an ordinary earthen vessel, but inside is an amazing treasure. And that, of course, is the life of Jesus Christ himself, which explains why even though we just kind of get around in ordinary bodies, these are only temporary. It's like a, like a perishing tent. This is not our real dwelling place. We are made for so much more. There is, there is a, a dwelling in heaven that awaits us, and it's already got your name and my name written on it. It's okay. We don't even have to share rooms there. there is this, each of us has our own house in heaven, as it were. And, and that's our real permanent dwelling place. That's where, that's where we belong. Um, and all of that is because of this work that God has done in our life. Um, what he has essentially done is he's taken something which was dead and he's brought it to life. It's, it's like a whole new creation. And, and, and just like he created the world, he has now created within you and I this new life. We're a whole new creation. And then the last picture that Paul uses is, is the picture of, of being like an ambassador or an envoy. Now that you understand that grace, now go and offer that grace to others. God wants to reconcile the whole world to himself, and he asks us to have this, this ministry of, of reconciliation. Now, we looked at part of that last week, and that is how each of us have this special ministry of reconciliation, being, as it were, ambassadors or, or diplomats, envoys of God, God making his appeal through us. We looked at the similarity to the word um, that is often used for preaching, which is, which is to herald or to proclaim. We are living proclaimers every day. We open our door and we walk out, and it's like a proclamation of this reconciling work that God wants to do to the world. He wants to bring us together. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing. Essentially, um, this ministry of reconciliation is for the whole world. It's, it's kind of like all creation having the opportunity to know that they can become a new creation. That's, that's what God wants to do. Now, the remarkable thing in all of this, and, and I hope you're following, it gets, I'm going to break it down in just a minute, but the remarkable thing about all of this is that God's favored means to reconcile people to himself, to bring people who are lost and far away to himself, God's favored means to do that is to make his appeal through us. It's a very personal and intimate appeal. He could have, Jesus Christ could have just stayed in heaven with his father and then yelled out, by the way, everybody, you can be reconciled to dad. There, dad, it's done. But no, the incarnation was a very personal action. This was God sending his son into the world. And God did that because this is his favorite means 
to reconcile people to himself. In verse um, 19, here's the gospel in a nutshell. If you've, if you've ever been scared of somebody one day coming up and asking you, so this gospel stuff that you Christians talk about all the time, how would you explain it? In a, in a nutshell, 30 seconds or less, one sentence. How would you explain it? Well, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 isn't a bad little verse. It doesn't capture everything about the, the profound mystery of what God has done, but it's a great, it's a great little verse. Um, chapter 5, verse 9, so all this is from God who reconciled to us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, here it is. What is that ministry of reconciliation? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, no longer counting people's sins against them. There's the gospel in a nutshell. God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ, no longer counting people's sins against them. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. It's amazing. The, the grace of God that does this, it is absolutely remarkable. And this is not new, that God was doing this, this reconciling work, bringing people to himself. This is not new. No, 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 no. Um, we, we call it in theology, missio dei, the mission of God. Literally, mission is, is actually a Latin word. It's one of those confusing ones. Flick to your concordance and you won't find the word there in the Greek. The mission of God is the sending of God. Mission means to, to send. The mission of God is the sending of God. And, and God himself is pursuing people. Um, sometimes we think about mission as being the action of the church. David Bosch, a missiologist, says mission is not so much the action of the church. It's an attribute of God. It's very important to understand that. Otherwise, we, we keep ourselves running around in circles, very, very busy, doing lots of activity for God. That's not mission. Mission is not an action of the church. It's an, an actual attribute of God. It's, it's the Father um, working through his Son and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwelling and empowering the church to be his ambassadorial presence in the world. The Father is working through Jesus Christ, his Son, and the Holy Spirit, who, remember, indwells us, and we are the church. And he does that so that he can reach a hurting world. This is the work of the Father. That's why we call it God's mission, the mission of God. Um, so often in Christian circles, um, we identify with Christ in his death and resurrection, and we're right to put emphasis on those two things. That's how we come to God, but we forget to identify with Jesus Christ in his mission to the world. Remember, that is one of God's attributes. Uh, we'll be having a baptism in a few weeks, and we'll demonstrate beautifully the reality of, of, of being, being dead to self and, and, and alive with Jesus Christ of identifying with Christ in his death and his resurrection. But perhaps what we don't always do justice to is the way in which we need to keep identifying with Jesus as a follower of Jesus Christ in his mission. All of this starts out way back. This is not new. In Genesis, where something gets lost, there is that beautiful, intimate, wonderful relationship that Adam and Eve have with God. And then, of course, through disobedience, that gets broken. What's lost? Relationship is lost. Now, it's a bizarre thought, isn't it, to think that God, God is capable of losing something. All-powerful, omniscient, he knows everything. How can God lose something? But he does. He loses relationship with us. Not his fault, our fault. The rest of the Old Testament, the story of him gathering a people to himself as he begins to reclaim that which he lost. 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then bursting onto the scene is Jesus. John puts it so succinctly this way. God just so loved the world that he's given his only son, Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is God sending his son to talk about the, the, the sentness. Um, Jesus uses... Three stories, you're familiar with at least one of them in Luke chapter 15. The first one is about a lost coin. The second one's about a lost sheep. And the third one is, is about a lost son. Each of these talk 
about the rejoicing in heaven that takes place when something that was lost is now found. Uh, the, the coin, you might remember, as a widow has 10, she loses one. Well, that one coin's pretty precious. She looks everywhere to find it, and when she finds it, she's just filled with joy. Uh, the lost sheep, this is a far better shepherd than I'd ever be. So he's got 100 sheep. He loses one. I don't know. Would you be like me? I'd settle for 99. It's late in the night. It's kind of tea is cooking. Lamb. Maybe that's where it is. Anyway, you, you've you lost a sheep. Aren't you happy with your 99? No, he's not. This is a good shepherd. He goes out and he finds that one lost sheep. And then there's the story of the, of the lost son. Now, the son, unlike the... The coin or the sheep, I mean, the coin has no personality. The sheep has no brains. The son, well, actually, maybe there is a comparison. But anyway, the son runs away from, from everything that he had whilst in relationship with his father, gives it all up, squanders his inheritance. And, and yet God the father, the heart of the father, just has never gives up on his son, always hopes that one day he will come back. That's the heart of God. And when that which was lost to him one day is seen on the horizon, walking down the long road to come back home, he flings off all dignity and runs and he embraces his son because his son has come home. That which was lost is now found and there is wonderful rejoicing in heaven. Jesus uses these stories to talk about his mission. A few chapters later in Luke chapter 19, there's the wonderful story about Zacchaeus. He's only a little guy, so he climbs up in a, in a tree to, to see Jesus as he's passing by. And as he's passing by, Jesus stops. He notices Zacchaeus in the tree, and he, and he calls out to him. Now, the disciples, they've got a big program. They've got a big crusade in town. and come, Jesus, let's keep moving along. Leave him alone. This is a little guy. Besides, he's a tax collector. Pay no attention to him. Come on. But Jesus stops because God is at work. His father's always at work, and he senses there's something important happening here. So, so he says, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house for dinner. Now, at first, Zacchaeus is overjoyed. He's kind of like, he's really, really glad about it. But when he gets Jesus into his home, I wonder if he had second thoughts just for a moment, because there in his home, he's surrounded by all of the trophies of his greed, a life lived for himself. Stricken, conscious stricken, he, he repents and he says to Jesus, you know what? I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. I'm going to give not just the twofold required for a thief, but the fourfold. I'm going to give anyone I've robbed, I'm going to give four times as much back to them. His heart and his mind were so turned back towards God. He's filled with repentance. And Jesus describes it this way. Today, I tell you, what you're looking at here, today salvation has come to this household. And the disciples, still a little bit perplexed about this whole thing, Jesus explains it to them this way. He says, you know what? The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. There's his little mission statement. My father lost something. I've been sent to reclaim it. That's what I do. Come follow me. John 20, 21, that same, same sentness which was so much an attribute of Jesus, he now passes on to all of his followers. And he said, as, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. In the same way, thinking about the holes in his hands at the same cost. It's not easy. It's not just beer and Skittles. They're not exactly the words that Jesus used. But it's, but it's, not, it's not easy, but this is what you are called to. This is what it means to be my disciple. As I have been sent, so now I send you. And he uses the words, and Luke captures it in Acts 1.8, and in the, the back end of, of the gospel of Luke there, be my witnesses. I want you to be a, be a witness to this reality of my life in you. And that's an ongoing witness. That's a daily witness. That's not ref reflecting back, oh yes, 40 years ago. No, that's a Today, he lives within me, and it's a reality that I cannot shake off. That's an everyday kind of a, kind of a witness. You see, God sees. He sees that which is, which is lost. Sometimes we, we wonder about the second coming of the Lord, and, and wow, we just think about the enormity of the problems that we have created in our world. I mean, just to pick up a newspaper or to listen to 
to five minutes of the, of the news if it's a decent news program and you just realize, wow, we have really made a mess of this place. How do we fix it? Where is justice? How do we, how do we create something that reflects the character of God once more on this planet called Earth? And we think, Lord, I think you need to come back now. <laughs> We've just made a jolly big mess. Would you please come back now? Well, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, Peter reassures believers in 2 Peter 3.9. He's not slow as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's, if it feels like a delay, that's what is in the mind of God. He is wanting everyone to have an opportunity to come to repentance. He sees. We may not see, but he sees. Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 to 38 has a beautiful moment. There's a sense in which Jesus, instead of in the city, is, is apart from the city. I picture him on a hill looking down at the crowds, at the multitudes. And as he does this, when he sees the crowds, he has compassion on them because he, he sees them as harassed and helpless like sheep with no shepherd. Jesus sees, God, God sees. When I was a missiology student, I was quite taken by some studies on megacities. Now, a megacity is, is a city of 10 million people or more. Um, just to give you a little bit of an idea of what that currently looks like in our world population of 7.3 billion, over the last few decades, more and more people have just gathered in the cities, and it's it's created all sorts of problems, but we have megacities all over the world now. Just, just in the top 10, we have uh, coming in at 10th is Delhi with 21 million people. Then Mexico City, 22 million people. New York City, Karachi, Guangzhou, Beijing, Seoul, Jakarta. Number two is Shanghai. And anyone know what number one is? Yeah. Tokyo. 39 million people in Tokyo. These are the megacities. I looked at the top 30, and, and in my, my time in missions, God has, God has given me, I estimated, the opportunity to, to visit about half of, of those. And I remember the very first time I flew into a megacity, um, just looking at the lights around me and realizing as I came, flew in at night, that quite probably... Most of those lights represent households, and most of those households represent at least a half a dozen people. Now, eight out of the top 10 megacities in the world are in Asia. And it's reasonable to suggest that the large proportion of those people haven't the faintest idea who Jesus Christ is. Oswald Smith once said, nobody should hear the gospel twice until everybody has heard it once. He also said, we talk in Christian circles about the second coming when half the world doesn't even know about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Megacities are just one example of when we think about mission, just how complex it really is and how lost a person can feel. I, I was toying with a little bit of an illustration and you'll see why in a moment. It's probably good that I didn't, because it would have got very, very messy. But, but I was just trying to, trying to think about all of this. And um, I did a little bit of research on grains of salt. Put some salt in my hand, actually, and I, I could just see how small a grain of salt is. And it's much, much iodized salt, much smaller than a, than a grain of sugar. And I was just thinking, you know, about, I wonder what, in terms of a you know, a megacity, I wonder what a million grains of salt would look like. And, and actually, um, a million grains of salt would look like about half a, half a cup of, of salt, a standard, standard measure cup. So, so you could think of it this way. What, what would it be like to be just one person in a, in a megacity of 10 million people? Well, imagine, imagine you had a grain of salt, and I was going to get a volunteer to come up, and they'd put their little grain of salt on a, on a tray, and, and then I'd say, now, out of the, out of the, the, the bag of of, you know, salt or humans. Take a, take a, take a cup of humans and, um, and, and pour it. Let's, let's pretend you're just in a standard megacity of 10 million people and pour it over that grain of salt. Well, you'd, have to, you'd actually have to get five, five cups of salt to pour it 
to pour it over, over that little grain. But imagine that you weren't into, you know, in living in just one, you know, a mega city, but you were actually in, say, Delhi. Uh, you're in a mega city of over 20, um, 20 million people. In that case, you would have to, uh, if it was 20, 20 million people, you would have to put 10 cups of salt over that little grain of salt. But but now imagine that you live in Tokyo, 39, let's round it up to, to 40 million people. They'll be there soon, I'm sure. 40 million people, that's, that's 20 cups of salt. You can see why my little illustration be getting rather messy by now. 20 cups of salt over it. And then imagine that you now, now have represented yourself in amidst a population of 39, 40, 40 million people. Imagine if I said, now find the original grain of salt. Wow, that'd be hard. It'd probably be impossible, wouldn't it? Unless you're a very good counter and very patient. Yet God can do it. God sees. Amidst the world's population, he sees you and he sees me. The whole population of the world, 7.3 billion people, the whole population of the world would represent seven bathtubs, seven bathtubs of salt. And, and God, if he had to find you, he would know exactly which bathtub to walk up to. He would exactly know which end of the bathtub to reach into. He'd know the exact depth to reach into. And in his fine motor skills, he would pick out that one grain of salt which represents you. He sees you. He knows you. You are not lost to him. God longs that everybody would understand that and be reconciled to to him and he sees everybody and his father's heart is such that he doesn't want anyone to perish matthew 24 14 is where i mentioned this verse last week jesus says this gospel of the kingdom the reign of god coming in a person's life this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. The word there for nations, ethnos, means nations. Yes, it means tribes, peoples, races. It can mean multitudes. Do you get the picture? It means this gospel has to be preached to everyone because he sees them all. And his desire is that no one will perish. Uh, back um, when Bron and I were working in missions and we were just supported by faith, we were at a church um, a friend pastored there, his name was Gary, and, and uh, I was about to get up to speak, and, and Gary nudges me, he said, oh, by the way, how's your support going? Are you fully supported? And I said, oh, no, actually, I don't know, we're probably, I don't know, probably only about 70% supported. And he said, well, tell you what, if you'd like to um, tell the church about it, if anyone feels, you know, their heart's stirred and they want to support you, that'd be fine. I couldn't believe it. I said, oh. Thank you. He said, just, um, I think it's important though, tell them, tell them what you're really passionate about. What would you die for? And then he just disappeared. And I had about a minute before I was getting up to speak. I said, and his words just stayed with me. What am I really passionate about? What would I die for? And I was thinking, oh, I, I mean, Lord, how do I articulate that? How do I encapsulate that, that thought? Um, and then suddenly God, by his grace, just dropped it into my mind. I thought, I know it. And then uh, I just told the church that even I said, listen, Gary asked me, you know, what is it that I'm really passionate about? What would I, what would I die for? Well, it's, it's, it's this, that, that people in places and situations where they have not had the opportunity that I have had to know the love of Christ, that they would have that chance. That if people are going to reject Jesus Christ, then they deserve to do it wholeheartedly, not out of sheer ignorance. That was it. That was it. I guess it's very Australian, isn't it? Very egalitarian. It, it just demands a fair go for everyone. <laughs> because no one deserves to have to do life without the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. So God, this is not new, the mission of God. God is about reconciling people to himself. But this is the bit that blows us away. He chooses to use you and I. 
He wants to make his appeal to people, to be reconciled to him. He chooses you and I to do it. Verse 20 goes on and says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his envoys, as though God were making his appeal through us. Now I know if we were God's advisors, we have a multitude of better ways, don't we? I mean, we have so many suggestions. Has God thought about using Twitter? I mean, really, this is, this is not a good plan. But he seems to be sticking with it. He wants to make his appeal through us. If I had to guess why he wants to use you and I rather than twits, although I would guess this, it has to do with time and proximity. Um, he wants to make his, uh, his appeal through us. Uh, I think God, quite honestly, knows that there is power in proximity. I mean, Luke said, you will receive power. You will be my witnesses, but you will receive power. Wait here in Jerusalem, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses to Judea, uh, sorry, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. There is power in proximity because God himself resides within you and I. The very spirit of Christ lives within us, and that's where the power is. When we give proximity or we create proximity for God, we bring the spirit of Christ that is within us to somebody who needs to be reconciled to God. Um, all of the great commission statements in the Gospels by John, Matthew, talks about make disciples. How do you make a disciple? Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. Well, how do you do that? It's life on life. It's proximity. You need to be able to draw, draw close to someone and, and say, you know, share how life is going for you. Not well. Do you know what Jesus said about that? No, I don't. This is what he said. What do I do? Try and put it into practice. All right, then. How's that going for you? That takes proximity. Um, Mark and Luke both pick up on the, on the preaching. Remember, preaching isn't just what public speakers do. And to be a herald, to proclaim, that's, that's what all of us are called to do, to, to, to preach this good news, this gospel of the kingdom of God. What is that? The good news about the rule of God. What is the good news about the rule of God? If you let him rule, it would be good. That's the good news. But how does someone experience that? Well, incrementally. Here's an area of my life. Do you think the rule of God would be good here? I proclaim it would. All right. Here's another area of my life that's unsurrendered. Do you think the rule of God would, would be good in this area? I proclaim it would. Here's another area of my life. Incrementally, the rule of God takes over a whole person. That's good news because that brings in the authority and the power of God. Um, many, many years ago, there was in Guatemala a, a translator. Uh, Wick, he was working with Wycliffe Bible translators. He's up working amongst a particular language, language group. And this was, this was many years ago. Um, we had uh, um, just, just sent, um, I, want, I, want, I want to say this morning, I want to say Louis Armstrong um, to the moon, which would have changed history, wouldn't it, to have a trumpeter on the moon. But anyway, it wasn't Louis, it was Neil. Um, but, but we sent Neil Armstrong to the moon. And, and so it was just not long after that, and he didn't have a trumpet to blow. But it was not long after that, that, that in Guatemala, in this little village, um, the Bible translator was standing there with his friend by the name of Chico, and they were looking up at the stars in the night sky, and it just came up in discussion. The translator mentioned, do you know just recently, you know, from my country, we've been able to send somebody to the moon. We've actually put a man on the moon. And uh, Chico replied, that's impossible. It can't be done. And the translator asked, what do you mean? Why is it impossible? And he just looked up there and he said, the moon's too small. And uh, so the translator kind of explained to him, well, actually, that's to do a distance. He goes, oh, he, can, he kind, of, kind of got that. Okay, yep, I see it. And then the translator asked Chico this, this question. He said, so would you like to go to the moon one day? Then he said, no, no, that, that wouldn't be what my wish would be. And so the translator said, picking up that he has got a desire, he has got a wish, he's got something on his heart. He said, well, what, what would you wish for? He said very, very simply, I wish that I could read. Because if I could read, then when you finish your translation, I would be able to understand God's word to me. 
And then once I knew that, I would know how to follow him. Well, that put a kind of a kick in the step of this Bible translator. But that's discipleship. To obey everything that Jesus has commanded, you've got to understand what Jesus commanded. You've got to know what is it that that Jesus wants us to do, his, his followers. And that takes proximity. John's great commission statement, I mentioned it before, is a little bit different. John chapter 20, 21. In John it is, as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. So firstly, there is the the ambassadorial responsibility of of proximity to people, but there is the willingness to, to go. Many years ago, I worked with a particular mission organization, and I had to attend an area conference in Europe. Um, so we, we actually met in Istanbul, actually, and, and uh, somebody from the office had, had said, now, you must find my dear friend. I used to work with them, and I have a message for them, and I just want you to embrace them and, and send them my love. And I said, okay, who, who is it? And I said, oh, he's, he's German. His name is Wolfgang. You're going to ask him about what he does. I said, okay. So I tried to get with Wolfgang the whole time we were at this, this conference, and it was so difficult. And one afternoon, we were both free, and he was there with his, with his son. And I said, Wolfgang, what are you doing? And he said, well, we we're going to go down to the, to the Turkish bath. Do you want to join us? I said, all right. So there I was with my German friend in a Turkish bath in Istanbul, and, and, and there we were, were chatting away, and I, I passed on my message and greetings and, and so forth. And, and then I remembered what they said. I asked him about where he lives and what he's there. So, so tell me, you know, tell me about life for you. Where, where are you working? And he said, well, we're working in Siberia. I said, is that a fact? Wow. I said, so um, whereabouts? So how do, you, how do you get there? He said, well, to get where we actually work, it would be about a, about a two-day two day train trip. And, and then we would stop and we'd drive for about a further three days. And, and then we get to this, in the little, middle of nowhere, we get to this, this, this little town. I said, well, what's there? Why would you go there? And he said, well, nothing to speak of in the town itself, but not far away. There's a uranium dump. I said, okay. <laughs> or or what's, what's life like there? And he said, well, um, if, if you just think about all of your scales of societal ills, depression, um, drunkenness, um, abuse, if you just think about all of those scales, the town I live in would top all of them. I said, wow. He said suicide. He just kept listing them. I said, how is it that you and your family have ended up there? There's a very, very simple answer for him. Oh, God called us. We were sent. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, he, he sent his one and only son. God still loves the world, and he's still sending. What does that mean for our church? What does it mean for us to get on board the mission of God that all creation has the opportunity to become a new creation? Well, well, firstly, it means remembering last week's part of the message, and, and that is, of course, that we're all called to mission. We are, as it were, right here at EBC, a mini missions organization, and, and, and you have people who are a part of your mission field, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your workmates, and just people you meet, but they are a part of who God is calling you to be an ambassador to, to have an ambassadorial presence. So cultivate a missional lifestyle here and now. Uh, Remember, you've got a very, very busy dad. Every time you wake up in the morning and you walk out the door, remember, you're an ambassador. And you say, well, what are you going to do today, God? Because I'd like to be a part of that. This is your mission. I know that you're very busy. You'll be working all today, working in the lives of the people that I'm going to meet. So what are we going to do today, Dad? How can I cooperate with your spirit, allow you to to work through me? Um, Another way in which we as a church can, can be on mission to reach the world is to remember that it's not just an individual thing. It's a bit of a team thing here. We're all together in this. As a church, we are capable of doing things together that we could never do alone. If you just thought about your family and you kind of all of a sudden had a heart for Japan or, or Thailand or the Philippines or Indonesia, if you had a heart for any one of those countries and you thought, 
you know, I, I, I don't think I could go, but I'd love to support somebody to go, but I could never afford. Well, no, you, you possibly couldn't afford to, to send another family just by yourself, but together, all together, we can, and indeed we do. And then we have many home missionaries here who from here are impacting the world. It's very exciting, actually, to think about what God chooses to do, is pleased to do through us, humble little us. Um, many years ago, before, before you actually took me out of mission work and called me to be your pastor, I, I worked for a particular mission agency, and, and, and I noticed at a conference that we were underrepresented in South Korea, which you know, might not be a problem for you, but it was a problem for me because in my studies, I, I realized that South Korea is the, the second largest country per capita of sending missionaries into the world. And if we're not represented in South Korea, we've got a problem. And I had chats with various folk and, and ended up um, with a little bit of an assignment. Years ago, when I worked with another mission organization, I met a uh, a fairly influential pastor by the name of David Yu. We became, we became friends, and David worked for a, um, a, a church. It was a large church, about 60,000 people, and it gave him tremendous kudos or, or, or influence in terms of as a missions pastor around South Korea. So I emailed David, and I said, hey, you've been great to many different mission organizations um, over the years. I now work for this particular group. Do you think you could help us? Because we, we have no work at all in South Korea. He was very, very gracious. He said, I'd love to do what I can. And I, we had several meetings. And then my work with this particular organization finished up. And, and I was called to be pastor here. Didn't hear anything for years about what happened with those meetings and the connections that I tried to make. Well, about 18 months ago, you might remember the Associate International Director um, for this organization was, was here at our church. He was actually speaking. His name is Fred. And, and afterwards, I took Fred out to lunch, and, and I was dying to ask him, hey, whatever happened to that partnership in South Korea? And I don't know. I, I just had this little moment of, oh, just a check of my motivation. You know, why am I asking? And I thought, oh, I don't know. Um, maybe not for the right reasons. I'll just let it go. Anyway, the thought came back to mind again and again, and I thought, all right, now I've, I've got to pay attention to this because this is often how the Spirit of God works. I thought, maybe I'm supposed to ask him. So I said, hey, Fred, tell me, whatever happened to that partnership um, with, with South Korea? And, and he said to me, oh, he said, Stuart, it's funny that you should ask because this is actually something I've got to work on. But years ago, there was somebody who went and established the partnership, the connections, and so forth. And then, and then we lost connection, and, and nobody quite knows what the connection was. And, and I, can't, I can't quite work out. And then he stopped mid-sentence. And he looked at me, and he said, it was you. And I said, what? And he said, it was you, wasn't it? You were the one who went to South Korea. I said, well, yes, I did. And he said, you made the connections, didn't you? And he said, do you know David You And I said, yes, he's a, he's, a, he's a dear brother. We don't get to see each other often, but yes. And he said, oh. He said, I, every trip I go on, I'd love to go home and tell my wife, what did God, how is God at work? Why did God want me to go on this trip? Because it costs the family to be away. And he said, this is the reason I came to Australia. I said, really? And he said, yes, we, the... the the partnership feels like it's fallen over and we need to re-establish a connection. I didn't know how we were going to do it. And, and he asked me, would I be willing? And you know what? You as a church released me to go over with the international director and the associate international director, Fred. And we had several very, very productive meetings in South Korea. We met with David once more and, uh, and just had a, had a fabulous time reconnecting and, and getting things back on track. Now, now, hear me on this. I've got to be careful in telling this story. Don't misunderstand me. Am I saying that somehow, you know, I was used somehow to do this amazing thing and it was all really, really glitzy? No. God could have picked a thousand ways to put that partnership together, couldn't he? Think about it. He could have picked so many different people to, to do it. But 
In his sovereignty, in his grace, by his mercy, he was pleased to use us. You guys, because you give me three weeks a year to give back to missions. Me, for reasons I can't explain except that I was available. He was pleased to use us to, to, put, that, to put that back on track. And I, I was just emailing David recently about another matter and and, uh, and he sent me back this lovely, lovely email. Dear Brother Stuart, thank you so much uh, for your kind efforts towards this other matter. And he goes on a little bit about that. Then he says, I am prog progressing the ministry in relation to this particular mission agency now in Korea. In other words, he is now the, the founding director in Korea for this mission agency, step by step. I pray for the grace of God so that we set up a healthy and biblical mission agency to expand his kingdom. Please pray for the ministry that we will find good co-workers and churches who are eligible and well-prepared to reach the world. Once again, thanks for your love and friendship in Christ. May our sincere Lord continue to bless you and the ministry there. Shalom, every blessing, David. Well, I hadn't heard that news, but I was so delighted to hear that that somehow God had used our little efforts to, to touch the world. There are people in places and situations all around the world, and they've never had the opportunity that you and I have had to know about the love of Jesus Christ. That's not fair. But as a result of our prayer, our availability perhaps, God is pleased to use us to help change that situation. So all together we can make a difference. How else? Support. Support some of the people that we have already in place. If you don't know who we, who we support as a church, have a look out there in the foyer and, and there's a number of mission families. Grab one of their prayer cards and we've got this little slogan here, everyone supports someone. That means by praying for them. It might mean helping them financially as well, but but it is our desire that we never have a missions committee here at Eltham Baptist Church. Andrew referred before to the missions ministry team, but we're more facilitators. We don't want to have a missions committee here at EBC because we're all the missions committee. There's not just a, you know, just a few mission junkies that can't seem to get it out of their system. No, we're all supposed to be passionate about God's heart for the world. So pray, support someone. Everyone supports someone. And then be prepared to go. Uh, you, you know when you get a letter in the mail and it's got that little postcode on it? You know, whatever that postcode is, it reminds you of your, your designation in the world. Well, have a look at that and then offer it up to God and say, I know, Lord, that right now it says 3095 or whatever it might be for you. But I surrender that to you because I'm an alien here. I'm a stranger here. I don't belong. And I know this is just a temporary postcode anyway. I, I give it back to you. Where would you like me to be on mission for you? And keep, keep that heart so that if one day God was to nudge you and say, hey, I'd love you to serve me in such and such a place. I just want to switch your postcode a little bit. Do what you're doing, but I want to switch your postcode. Is that okay? You say, hey, I surrendered my postcode years ago to you, Lord. You dictate where you would like me to be on mission with you. The last scene in the movie Schindler's List is, is a beautiful, very, very moving scene. And it has Oscar Schindler standing on a set of railway tracks with his Jewish accountant. The Allied forces are pushing in. The Germans are running for it. And because Oscar's German too, until he can kind of clear his name a little bit, just for his own safety, he's got to get out of there. His Jewish accountant is saying, Oscar, you've done all you can do. do go. But he's just stuck. He's frozen. He can't move. And he's, he's just taking it in. It's surreal. He's taking in. The Allied forces are coming in. And, and look, all of these Jews that were on our list employment list working for us, they've been saved. But how many, how many lost their lives? And he asks his accountant, how many did we save? And he gives him a figure. And Oscar isn't satisfied with that figure. He's kind of thinking, we could have saved more. And he's, 
checking his pockets and he finds a gold watch and he's thinking about a ring on his finger and he says, because he had to buy each Jew from the Germans, and he says, how, if I'd given these things, how many more could we have bought? And his account's shaking his head. He kind of, don't, don't go there, Oscar. You did what you could. Don't go there. But he's, he's finding no relief from that answer and he, he wants it. How many? How many? How many more could we have saved? And I guess at that point, he's suddenly, suddenly he sees the big picture. Suddenly he sees the opportunity that he had. And yes, he was used, but he's looking, he's looking at his worldly possessions, the things that he's, the few things, but the things that he was hanging on to and, and all of a sudden thinking, of what value are they? You know, in the same way, I think we will kind of come towards the end of our days and, and we will have an opportunity likewise to, to think about everything that we committed to. How did we use our time? What did we accumulate? The things we surrounded ourselves with, how we used our time. And in that moment, wouldn't it be wonderful to have no regrets whatsoever about how we used our life for the glory of God? In that moment, to think, yeah, you know what, I... It wasn't much, but I gave everything I had. Now, that story's not to elicit some sort of a guilt trip or something like that. It's an encouragement. It's a reminder to all of us to just hold loosely to the things of this world because, you know what? We take out of this world exactly what we came into this world wearing. That's a little embarrassing, but i just thankful it happens in the twinkling of an eye. Um, in other words, we go with nothing. So, how are we using the things that we have for the glory of God and to join him with his mission? Let's pray. that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting their sins against them. Oh, Lord. In the moment when somebody realizes that, in Christ, their sins are no longer counted against them. In that moment, they're not just reconciled to you. They become a worshipper of you. Mission only exists because worship doesn't. As John Piper has said, so Lord, we would love to see more and more worshippers born into your kingdom, to be a part of your family, to sing your praises. And there should be no reason why a willing heart shouldn't be able to meet and have relationship with their creator. So we want to again tonight commit ourselves to that thank you for the for the way in which you use us as a church to that end, but as individuals, once more, we commit ourselves to that attribute of yours, that you are a missional God, reclaiming that which was lost. We love that about you, Lord, and we want to emulate that in every part of our life. Help us to this end, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.